Well, I lied. I'm sorry. I admit it. Please forgive me. What did I lie about? Enjoy this episode and find out. You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel, and if you're looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Friends and family, welcome back to Datages. We've talked for the last couple of episodes about the power of the responsible, accountable mindset and about how it can be cultivated in a professional environment. And now I have to be accountable for something. As I said in the cold open, I lied to all of you. About what? Well, in the first episode on this Datage, responsibility is a luxury, accountability is the price you pay for it, I said I'd be giving you two episodes on the topic. Then in the last episode, I said there would be a third episode. Well, now I'm here to tell you that there's going to be a fourth solo cast in this series. That's right, four. Today, in the third episode, we're going to talk about powerful societal forces and events and their impact to undermine the establishment of the responsible, accountable mindset. As we've discussed on datages in the past, there are some things that are simply outside of our control. And sometimes outside forces on a global scale can undermine our best efforts to establish a culture within the environments that we each control. But don't get disheartened by listening to today's episode because in the fourth episode on this series, we're going to conclude our discussion of the responsible, accountable mindset with a discussion about where you can have the greatest impact on the present and the future, and that's at home. We're going to focus today on two major challenges to accountability. One is a generational shift, and the other is a once-in-a-generation worldwide phenomenon. The first topic today is the rise of Gen Z and the vastly different perspectives from prior generations regarding leadership, institutions, authority, and accountability. The second topic is the impact of COVID-19 and how our society and the professional environment in particular have changed in this post-COVID parallel universe. Depending on your age, your experiences, and your perspectives, you might think that Gen Z and COVID are both pandemics. It's okay. You don't have to say it out loud. I know you're thinking it. Gen Z has established an entirely new vocabulary, as each generation tends to do. Much of their vocabulary has to do with new trends that have emerged that relate to how members of Gen Z relate to one another and changing relationships, social and professional behavior patterns that have emerged as defining characteristics of their generation. Let's talk about a few of these and how they relate to undermining of the responsible, accountable mindset. Let's start with ghosting. And for those of us who are Gen Xers, I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with a super sexy, epic pottery wheel session like Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. 
Kellefern Pomeranz, who is a doctor of psychology, explains ghosting in this way. Ghosting is cutting off a relationship by abruptly ceasing all contact and communication with a partner without any apparent justification or warning, as well as ignoring the partner's attempts to reach out or communicate. In a 2018 study from Western University in Ontario, Canada, it revealed just how common ghosting has become. 65% of participants had disappeared on a partner, while 72% reported that their partner had ghosted them. But why do people engage in this behavior? Another doctor of psychology, Karen Ruskin, explains the motivation for ghosting this way. They don't want to confront what it is that they're feeling or they're experiencing. It's too hard for them. Ghosting allows for an avoidance of conflicts, an avoidance of explanation and self-introspection. The ghoster avoids having to be kind and compassionate to the other person's feelings. While ghosting originally emerged as a relationship trend, a way to break up with a partner without taking any accountability for that process or for the feelings of the other individual, ghosting has carried over as an easy-out approach to dealing with conflicts or potential awkwardness in all aspects of life. I've run into this with Gen Zers working within my company. On more than one occasion, I've had a team member simply stop showing up to meetings, stop returning emails and phone calls, and simply disappear because they weren't happy with their job or our company or me or something. I'll never actually know. I have so many stories about being ghosted by Gen Z team members that they almost run together in my mind. But since this phenomenon of ghosting came out of relationships, I'll say this. You never forget your first time. Wait till you hear this story. When my company was based in Orange County circa 2016, we had a team member just completely disappear on us. No one knew what happened to him. He was nowhere to be found and was not returning calls or emails. Was he dead? Was he off on a bender somewhere? Was he kidnapped by the cartel? We had no clue. Again, this was the first time I had experienced this behavior, and I wasn't really prepared. I was confused and, and worried. We all were. So I dispatched my personal assistant, Nicole, to go by his parents' house to see if they knew where he was. When Nicole arrived at his parents' house, she walked around the side to ring the doorbell, and then she saw something, something she could never unsee. There he was, in the side room of his parents' house, sitting on the couch, on the phone, in his underwear, his tidy whities She didn't ring the doorbell. She just left and called me from the car to say, yeah, he's not coming back. That was the first, last, and only time I ever tried to track down a Gen Z ghost. And trust me, I've been haunted by many more since then. In a social context, you can consider the opposite, but perhaps even more destructive force to ghosting to be canceling. Whereas ghosting is disappearing voluntarily to avoid an uncomfortable interaction with another person, canceling is an attempt to neutralize, silence, ostracize, condemn, or just erase someone because their beliefs, ideals, or behavior has been deemed unacceptable. What I find ironic about the cancel culture is that it represents free speech being used as a powerful weapon against free speech. In the old world of mass media, powerful media outlets had the ability to dictate the narrative, define reality, and decide whose voice was heard. As social media proliferated, it appeared to be the platform for equal opportunity free speech. 
But social media is the environment that spawned the cancel culture, an invisible and indiscernible collective consciousness that is fluid and changing, decides what is acceptable and unacceptable at any given time. That which is deemed unacceptable at any moment has its voice quickly quashed. Permit me to make an obscure comparison here that only a very small percentage of you are going to understand. I was a deadhead growing up. Not a major deadhead, but I saw 16 Grateful Dead shows while I was in high school and college. What I loved so much about the culture of the Grateful Dead was its inclusivity. I remember going to shows in Madison Square Garden where I looked across the audience and saw people from all walks of life. I saw stockbrokers straight off Wall Street who had arrived in suits and ties and sat back, loosened their ties, had a beer, and enjoyed some great music. And then there were total hippies selling kind veggie burritos out of their VW vans in the parking lot. And the spinners, women in flowing skirts, probably tripping on LSD and spinning in circles for hours in the aisles the entire time the dead played and sometimes long after the music had stopped for the rest of us. I truly love the deadhead culture. Then along came fish. I'm sorry to any fish heads listening, but I'm going to share my frank observations and opinion, and, and it's not good. The culture I saw around fish was a corruption of the dead culture. Fish heads seemed to have an attitude of, if you're not as alternative as we are, you don't belong here. I think the fans of Fish represented the first cancel culture that I experienced in person. I saw a couple of shows, left disheartened and a bit disgusted, and threw away all of the Fish albums I had and, and never went back. I suppose I had canceled them, but only in private in my own world. I don't think that makes me a hypocrite, but if you disagree, please let me know in the comments or email me at chad at datages.com. So should we care about the cancel culture at hippie jam band concerts or on Twitter? Perhaps not. But the cancel culture can very quickly cross over into more established environments and can undermine free speech in an institutional setting, along with leadership and the, the transfer of knowledge. On July 7th, 2020, Harper's Magazine published a letter on justice and open debate. This was an editorial letter penned by over 150 notable individuals, including among them author J.K. Rowling of Harry Potter fame, Noam Chomsky of MIT, jazz musician Wynton Marsalis, and even chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov. In the letter, they wrote, The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counterspeech from all quarters. But it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. This is certainly a frightening view of the impacts of the cancel culture. And now let me tell you the story of Joel Peterson. Joel Peterson is a professor of management at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business, the former managing partner of Trammell Crow Company and the former chairman of JetBlue Airways, chairman of the board of overseers of Stanford's Hoover Institution and chairman of Peterson Partners, 
a private equity fund of over $3 billion. Certainly, a leader of Peterson's stature is beyond the reach of the cancel culture. Nope. Peterson described his cancellation in 2021 in the piece he authored entitled My Road to Cancellation and in a detailed post to his LinkedIn profile, as he shared in those collective writings. I made a decision to give up teaching MGE, a signature second-year course at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Throughout my tenure at Stanford, I've sought to help students of every race, creed, nationality, and gender to become great business leaders. In a class I teach, students objected when guest CEOs claimed to have been colorblind. As an aside, those two CEOs were an African-American man and a woman. When I volunteered that I, too, had resisted hiring based on skin color, gender, or quotas, and had relied instead on character, competence, and commitment, some students were offended. I was summoned to respond to a disturbing complaint over having triggered woke students. Ultimately, there was threat of an investigation being launched into alleged hate crimes committed by Peterson based upon this circumstance and a couple of similar offenses of free speech, if you want to call them that. This is what forced him to go on sabbatical from teaching at Stanford. And while Peterson has remained a professor at the GSB, a position he has occupied since 1988, and he's now quietly gone back to teaching, it's a shame that such a prominent leader and an amazing professor had to endure such hardship at the hands of the cancel culture. But as a great leader, even though he did not understand or agree with the attacks waged upon him, he took accountability for the reactions he had elicited from his attackers and stepped aside. Quite a remarkable story of the responsible, accountable mindset. Let's talk now about some additional attributes of Gen Z that applied directly to a professional setting. In the last episode, I talked about how critically important the individual accountability is to the success of teams. I said collective accountability equals no responsibility. If no one individual takes ownership of a particular outcome, then that outcome is far less likely to occur because there can be confusion or outright irresponsibility that leads to the job not getting done. It is far too easy for everyone to duck and cover when there's no individual that has been assigned accountability. But this notion is fundamentally at odds with one of the most discernible characteristics of Gen Z. Roberta Katz, Sarah Ogilvie, Jane Shaw, and Linda Woodhead led a multidisciplinary study of Gen Z across multiple educational institutions over several years and published the preeminent text on the subject entitled, Gen Z Explained, The Art of Living in a Digital Age. Look for a link in the bulletin board at datages.com. In this book, the authors explain that members of Gen Z generally believe that those of us born prior to 1997 are responsible for handing over to them a broken world. They believe that the leaders and the traditional institutions of our society have failed all of us, and that it is the collective responsibility of Gen Z to fix everything and rescue all of us. And to those of us that don't get it, they just say, okay, boomer. And this palatable distrust of institutions and leaders among Gen Z members results in them responding to models of work that are described as collaborative. But the extreme form of collaboration they favor leads to a complete lack of leadership. One Gen Zer interviewed in the study characterized the Gen Z model of leadership in the following way. So it's like coming to a consensus together and 
just going in there together. Because leadership is not just one person. Leadership only comes if you talk to other people and you decide that whatever feels right is among the majority. Really? Okay, I, I guess I could describe that perspective as utopian. I could also probably use the word naive, but I guess it could work. Let's take a closer look at the Gen Z style of leadership and, ex and an example of it in action. Katz et al. provide this further explanation. The desire for collaborative ways of working and problem solving is widespread among post-millennials. They like to collab together to address problems. The term collab is used to signify any collaborative enterprise among post-millennials, such as collab days and collab houses. Most collab houses are now virtual groups, but the notion began as actual physical houses rented especially for the purpose of bringing social media influencers together for living and creating content with a shared aim of boosting their number of followers. I'd like to distinguish this Gen Z model of collaboration from the model I've described in the last episode in which collaboration and independence are balanced with an emphasis on individual ownership of individual components of the outcome. This new Gen Z collab concept is a fully distributed model of responsibility without any level of independence or defined ownership structure. Remember my penchant for creating new words? I'm going to coin a new term right here. Social aberration. And can social aberration work? I guess what it boils down to for me is one simple question. What is your objective? If you are collabing only with post-millennials and your objective is, well, post-millennial in nature, such as growing social media followers, then the social aberration approach probably works. But throw in some intergenerational stakeholders, and the need to accomplish something that requires on their alignment on your objectives. And that's where things really break down. Let's look again to the book Gen Z Explained for a specific example. This distinctive form of collaboration underpins student activism. In spring 2016, Who's Teaching Us, WTU, a coalition of Stanford students who is self-identified as coming from marginalized backgrounds sent a document with a set of demands to university administrators asking that future faculty hires in the curriculum reflect their own experiences and teach their histories. It was the methods employed by the WTU movement that most surprised university administrators. Students conducted all communications online via a shared, collaboratively composed Google document. There were no specific leaders, and when in-person meetings did take place, different students participated each time. So the administrators felt completely at sea in trying to negotiate an outcome that satisfied everyone. For the older generations of university administrators, this mode of being and working was bewildering. What were the results? I can tell you from firsthand knowledge as a member of the Humanities and Sciences Council at Stanford, that these debates and the ongoing academic negotiations among administration, faculty, and students still go on today. And while there's been a natural evolution of faculty and areas of study at the university, I can't say that the Gen Zers operating in 2016 have had a meaningful impact on the university. Call me old fashioned, but while I certainly believe in the value of collaboration, and I definitely embrace the notion that organizations, all organizations benefit from a diversity of perspectives and backgrounds, 
I still believe that there has to be accountability in order to be focused on achievement. This does not mean autocratic authority vested in one individual. On the contrary, a healthy distribution of authority formed through direct assignment of components of responsibility to individuals throughout an organization in a transparent, consistent, and stable manner is the pathway to achievement. Okay, leaving the rise of Gen Z aside for now, by far the most impactful event of this young millennium, which has also served to undermine the responsible, accountable mindset, is the COVID-19 pandemic and the changes it has caused in the mindset of our entire populace. I want to focus on what I see as the two most undermining effects of the pandemic and the post-pandemic world. During COVID, we all got bailed out. As much as each of us had to endure during lockdown, government shutdown, school closures, more than a year surgically extracted from the timeline of our lives, we learned a new and very dangerous lesson. We don't have to take responsibility for ourselves because there is someone there to take care of us when things get difficult. And while COVID inarguably had a dramatic impact on all aspects of life and business, the imagined, projected, contrived, exaggerated, downright fabricated impacts of the pandemic have wreaked further havoc on the world and on our ability to get back to work and back to life. If 2008 was the big short, then I would label the dual destructive forces of the COVID-19 pandemic the big bailout, and the big excuse. Let's first talk about the big bailout. According to the U.S. Government Accountability Office, six COVID-19 relief laws enacted in 2020 and 2021 provided about $4.6 trillion of funding for pandemic response and recovery. This was one of the most rapid and concentrated government spending sprees in history. Could it have been avoided? Perhaps not. Perhaps the pandemic shutdown was so bad that we had no choice but to spend our way through it. But just as predicted by the results of similar periods of increased government spending, the impact on the GDP, which measures the productivity of the economy, while positive during such a spending spree, is negative in the period following the surge. And we're now seeing the impacts of inflation on our economy as well, directly tied to this government spending spree. But I don't think the impact of the big bailout can be fully explained by macroeconomics. I think we have to employ two other social sciences, psychology and sociology. To do so, we have to look more closely at how the money was spent by the government during COVID and the messaging explicitly or implicitly communicated by the government during that time period. Much of the narrative around the pandemic was driven by fear. While fear is a natural human response to unknown and existential threats, fear is also a powerful tool for control. And there was a great deal of control exercised over the American people through fear during the pandemic. This is nothing new. Those in positions of power have used fear to control populations for thousands of years. 18th century philosopher Edmund Burke wrote, no passion so effectually robs the mind of all its powers of acting and reasoning as fear. There was a lot to fear during COVID. Fear of sickness, death, loss of loved ones, fear of loss of employment and income, fear that life may never return to normal. But the government was there to protect us and to save us all. Obligations were forcibly suspended, such as paying taxes and rent, 
Loans were given out to support businesses, and many of them forgiven without obligation for repayment. Paychecks were written by Uncle Sam to fill our pockets where employers could not. What were the psychological and sociological effects of these patterns of behavior by the government? Self-reliance, perseverance, and individual achievement through hard work, which are the ideals on which America was built, were replaced by reliance upon social welfare programs of the government and a culture where accountability went completely out the window. Why should I ever go back to work if the government will pay me not to work in the worst of times? Why should I live up to obligations or commitments such as rental payments when the government says it's okay for me to shirk such obligations when things get really bad? Why should I ever repay loans or satisfy obligations if the government is going to loan me money and never expect repayment? Our entire population was dealt a new set of seductively irresponsible rules. We were all encouraged to practice irresponsibility to the point that it became habitual. And bad habits are hard to break. It is very easy to learn from a pattern of governmentally sanctioned societal irresponsibility in the face of struggles and to apply that same mindset of individual irresponsibility in the face of individual struggles. A lot of people just gave up working for good. This impact is masked when you just look at unemployment statistics because a lot of people don't really understand that if you're not looking for a job, you aren't counted as unemployed. You've simply left the workforce. Post-COVID, there's been a massive decline in the workforce participation rate. A May 2023 study done by the Brookings Institute, which is a nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C., identified that 1.5 million workers have left the workforce post-COVID that cannot be explained by basic demographic changes. There's a full 1% reduction in the U.S. labor force based upon people who seem to be permanently out of the workforce. And beyond those numbers, they found that the number of hours worked by people throughout our economy fell as well. Average work hours fell by 0.6 hours per week from 2019 to 2022. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it adds up. That reduction in hours worked is like taking another 2.5 million workers out of the labor force. This phenomenon has become known as quiet quitting. Megan Leonard wrote in an article for Fortune magazine on February 23rd, 2023. Much to the dismay of employers hoping to drive more productivity this year, quiet quitting isn't going away in 2023. Rather than actually walking off the job, quiet quitting is when workers pull back the time and effort they spend at work. Remember our discussion about ghosting? This is like baby ghosting, but still collecting a paycheck along the way. So we've talked about the big bailout and how it has eroded our workforce and our productivity. Clearly, there's been an economy-wide reduction in responsibility and accountability as a result. So what do I mean when I talk about the big excuse? Simple. If you wanted to get out of doing something, anything at all, since around mid-2020, you really only need one word. COVID. Magic. You're excused. Try Googling using COVID as an excuse. I did. I got 18,500,000 results. That's a lot of excuses. New York Times bestselling author Tim Rowland put it very well. COVID exposure is the new excuse that is not only unassailable, but like a canvas tote can be used over and over again, making it superior to say, 
I have to grout my tub that day, or I'm turning the compost heap. And it's not just for getting out of social events. Bad customer service? Sorry, COVID. Long lines at the airport? Mmm, COVID. The delivery is delayed? It's COVID. We burnt your steak? Sorry, sir, COVID. I'm sure you can understand. While these examples are incredibly frustrating, they mostly just represent inconveniences or annoyances. But many instances of the great excuse can be far more substantive. In my business, they can be both crippling and costly. Timelines have been incredibly extended, and deadlines have gone out the window and seem to be a thing of the past. Costs have gone through the roof through a combination of inflation and plain old price gouging. Companies are not willing to live up to contractual obligations. The labor shortages we discussed earlier, combined with supply chain issues, have brought many industries to a standstill. This is certainly the case with the construction industry. Perhaps the most pronounced delays in the construction process have been for the past two years and remain today HVAC systems. Heating and air conditioning systems have been tremendously impacted by supplies of raw materials like steel and supply chain issues around semiconductors. Air conditioning systems used to be nothing special in construction. Now they are more precious than gold. In the past year, we have had to beg, borrow, and steal HVAC systems from all over the world to complete our construction projects in our pipeline. In the prior Datages episode entitled The Distance Between Success and Failure, I described that one of my greatest abilities and the measure of success for me throughout my career has been the ability to create a sense of urgency. In the last two years, I've had to reframe my own perspective and redefine success for myself and my organization. Success now is not tied to completing an objective on time and on budget. It's based simply on completing the objective at all, period. There are a lot of companies that are trying to take advantage of the chaos in the marketplace. Rather than working collaboratively to address these challenges that we're all facing, they will take advantage of the chaos for their own advantage. A friend of mine who is the CEO of a major construction company put it to me in this rather crude way. Chad, the general level of fuckery going on in the construction industry is at an all-time high. I see this particularly with major corporations like national retailers. There's a collective move away from responsibility and trying to shift accountability to other parties. Here are just a few examples of the kinds of things I hear every day in business right now as excuses to avoid dealing fairly with other people. We just aren't going to take that risk. Too much is outside of our control. We know what the agreement said, but these are our circumstances and we aren't going to meet the commitments in the agreement. We aren't going to make a commitment to you because things could change and we need to maintain that flexibility. We need a backstop from you to protect us from the risks. And finally, oh, I'm sorry, were you expecting me to say something? No, that last one is just silence. Remember ghosting? That has actually become an approach to handling contractual negotiations and obligations in our post-COVID world. These are the challenges we're all facing every day in our present business climate. If you are struggling with these challenges, please share your stories with us through our social media channels or email me directly, chad at datages.com. We'd love to hear from you. This is an important time for all of us to come together. Those of us who still hold to the responsible, accountable way of life 
have to keep this world going for everyone who's abandoned any sense of personal responsibility whatsoever. That's where we will conclude today. We've spent a lot of time talking about ghosting, so I think I'm going to leave you all with a dad joke about ghosts. Why do ghosts hate the rain? Because it dampens their spirits. I hope I didn't dampen your spirits too much today. If I did, well, you'll have to tune in to our next episode, which will be much more uplifting, I promise. And to get us ready for that, here's another ghost joke. Why do ghosts love elevators? Because they lift their spirits. Keep your spirits lifted, Dadages, friends and family. And until next time, remember, Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table. And what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do? Because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.